Amish show, Ancient Secrets Revealed. I'm your host, Michael Mamas, and uh, I'm here today with uh, Adrian Dewey. Hi, Adrian. Hi, good morning. And Scott Davalos. Hey, Scotty. Good morning. Okay, so uh, today's topic is uh, kind of an interesting one, I think. Uh, sort of challenging, really. Uh, it's called the the destiny of chaos paradigms in collision. Okay, well, we're coming to you from Mount Soma as usual in the uh, mountains of Western North Carolina, and uh, I think it's important that we talk about. Uh, just what's going on in the world today. You know, I've talked about the challenging Jyotish. We'll get into that a little more. But if you just watch the news, you know, the whole thing like with the election and uh, Trump going to go to court now and uh, Biden, you know, setting up his cabinet. And uh, we have all the different conflicting ideas about uh, Antifa versus capitalism versus Black Lives Matter. We have, uh, you know, the wall, the border wall. Is it even just to have a border? We've got the whole question about, you know, abortion and uh, uh, pro-life versus uh, uh, a woman's rights, you know? So what do we do with all that? And gosh, just the conflict seems just so huge. And I, I've noticed a number of people talking about, you know, if they even have the opportunity because of the virus to get together on the holidays with their family, just the arguments and the conflicts and these conflicts aren't just national level and international level, but they're also so interpersonal. Uh, even conflicts about, you know, what we think of other people, what we think of our neighbors. Uh, we're just living in a a world of, of paradigm conflict and chaos. And it, uh, I think it makes us wonder, you know, what's, what's the way out? Where's, where are the chips going to fall? You know, what's going to happen? Um, so I think we do well. I mean, we could go through each one of them and we could talk about the arguments on one side versus the arguments on the other side. But I, I think I'll leave that to, to each of you to do for yourselves. The only thing I would say there is uh, do your best to try to uh, at least consider the pros and cons of each side, you know. Uh, we become so fanatical in our attitudes and in our positions in our paradigm identities, in our group think, our group consciousness, uh, that we become, I think we start to become narrow-minded. Now, uh, let's take a look, because to, to really do this responsibly, I think we need to take a look at uh, how we think, why we think what we think. Uh, where we're coming from and not just where we're coming from, but even more importantly, why, you know, in, in, in the uh, ideal situation, you know, I've talked about how there's Chaitanya. Chaitanya is 
like the uh, Chaitanya is the transcendent, the the absolute pure isness, the unified field, like that. And uh, ideally, we come from that place of infinite knowledge, infinite intelligence, infinite wisdom, that which dwells at the very source of our being, who and what it is we truly are in our essence. And what happens then is it wells up through the different levels of our life. And so at the very finest level of relative life and the very finest level, it's not a thinking thing. It's a feeling thing. Uh, even the uh, uh, Vedic chants of the ancient rishis, when they chanted, they didn't think it. They tapped into it on the deepest feeling level of their being. And it welled up through all the different levels of their being. And ultimately came out through the senses. So that's, and that's called Vedic cognition, Vedic chants. That's where they came from. And that requires a very uh, refined physiology uh, where the finest feelings and then even in the functioning of our daily lives, you see those finest feelings are the foundation of how we behave and what our perspectives are. And that goes from fine feelings to a more superficial level is reason. Those feelings we see reason isn't purely intellectual. It's not purely thought. It's something feels reasonable. Reason is sort of the emergence place, that transition place from fine feelings to actual thoughts. And so when the physiology is healthy, when the psychology is healthy, we tap into the transcendental depth of our being. And from there, those fine feelings well up through reason and permeate then and rise up to concrete thoughts. So our thoughts then are integrated with the depth of our being, that source of infinite wisdom, harmony, and intelligence. But there's an area there somewhere in the process, in the zone from feelings to reason to thoughts of emotions. What are our emotions? And our emotions about things are very uh, much colored by our life experiences. Our wounds, our childhood hurts, uh, our indoctrinations. Uh, so oftentimes when we say, I feel a certain way about any one of these issues, those feelings are rooted not really in the transcendental depth of our being, but in our emotions. Now we might say, well, no, 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 I'm, that's the way I feel about this. It's, it's feeling from so coming from so deep inside of me. It's, it's my truth. But really, uh, the deepest level a person's feeling or speaking from or capable of speaking from doesn't mean it's the transcendental depth of their being. It's just the deepest level of their being they're capable of accessing at this time. And so what happens is we get all these, they're called samskaras, impressions. There's a whole storehouse of impressions. And, and based upon those impressions, which are based upon all of our life experiences and our peer groups and who we identify with, what we identify with, that then takes over. And that's what determines our thoughts. You know, we think we think our way through life, but we don't. We feel our way through life. Our thoughts are just the dance we do around our feelings, how we feel about things. And so uh, um, 
what those emotions are, where all that comes from, is, is really karma. You know, we think our thoughts are our thoughts. They're not really our thoughts. They're, they're our karma. Karma is just cause and effect. If you have a certain number of influences in your life, then it's going to ter- determine how you think, and that's just your karma. And uh, so what we have here then is all these different herds of mentality, herds of karma, these currents going through society and affecting all individuals. And uh, uh, which herd, which current, which wave upon the ocean you're caught in and carries you determines your thoughts. But see, that's not how it feels with people. They feel like they're, they're, they're thoughts. These are my thoughts. This is how I feel about it. So we can't really distinguish experientially between thoughts that come from our karma versus thoughts that come from our deeper wisdom. And uh, uh, by and large, mostly, our thoughts come from uh, our karma. So if we take a look at uh, the Jyotish now, what, what is Jyotish? We could go on for a long time talking about what Jyotish is. But uh, in a nutshell, that's how, how would we say this? Uh, I am one with a unified field of the depth of my being. You're at one with a unified field of the depth of your being. This microphone in front of me is the unified field. Uh, everything is the unified field. It's all interconnected. We're one with everything. Therefore, it follows from that. If you follow the logic, it follows from that, that if I am the unified field and this microphone is the unified field, then I am the microphone. You see? And uh, uh, that's the the notion in the Vedic tradition of uh, oneness. I mean, it's a common notion in a lot of religions as well. But uh, uh, it's not just things that are one with, everything is one with, even systems, even dynamics. Uh, And one of the dynamics that people access quite a bit is the position of the planets in space. The positions of the planets in space are one with the unified field. I am one with the unified field. Therefore, I am the position of the planets in space. And so therefore you can, if you have a means of accessing that mapping, uh, then you can get insights into the nature of yourself based upon the position of the planets in space, for example, the moment you were born. And that's called Jyotish. You know, a lot of scientists look at astrology, Jyotish, and they'll say, oh, the planets are too far away. The gravitational influence is so insignificant, can't possibly have any sort of causality relationship with a person's life. And I agree with that. But that's not what Jyotish is. Jyotish is a study of, of the, uh, the mapping, the correlation. It's not about that's causing this, you see, based on gravitational influence or what have you. So the system, the solar system, maps onto the individual, which then maps onto the course of their life. Now, that's pretty darn abstract, Uh And therefore, it's very difficult to really read accurately. There are a lot of astrologers in the world. Very few of them, I think, do very well with their predictions. Uh, But at least it's better than trying to read uh, the arrangement of tea leaves in a cup or the uh, arrangement of the dust under your bed. The correlations are there, too. 
but they're not as accessible. So when we look at something like Jyotish, well, we do well to really look not too much of a nitpicky detail things. Those, those tend to uh, not be very accurate, but there are major trends in, and uh, the most, I guess, pertinent major trends over time that occur, what are called the transits. In other words, right now, if you look at your astrology chart and then you look at the transits, your astrology chart is, for example, where Saturn was when you were born. But the transits are where is Saturn now. And so if you take a look at your moon chart, which is how you read transits, you put moon in the ascendant from the moment you were born. And if you look at that and you see where the major, major thrusts are, which is the position of the slower moving planets. Why? Because they're there longer. And if they're there longer, then it has a, a longer influence. If moon just shoots right through in a couple of days, as it does, not long enough to really take much of an effect. It has some effect, but not as much. So really, the, 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 the most reliable way to go about looking at this is the slower moving planets, which are Saturn, Jupiter, Rahu, and Ketu. And right now, we have some pretty amazing things going on. Uh, with uh, particularly Jupiter and Saturn. And you can look right now, I think it's pretty much in the uh, early evening sky, you can see Jupiter and Saturn to the uh, uh, southwest in, in the sky. And what you what you would see is if you followed them slowly, slowly, they're getting closer and closer and closer and closer and closer together. And they'll be the closest uh, December 21st. Uh, and then after that, because Jupiter moves a little faster, Jupiter will pass Saturn and they'll start moving apart. But it's a critical time right now because as Jupiter and Saturn get closer and closer together, conflict. They're just one is contracting the other, like Jupiter's expanding, Saturn's contracting. There's a conflict there in the energies. So as they get closer, that conflict becomes more extreme. And uh, uh, that's why some of the Jyotishi, some of the astrologers were saying that December of 2020 is when things are really going to be challenging. There's going to be a whole chaotic shift. And that chaotic shift uh, correlates to what they're saying is a phase transition, a phase transition from uh, an age of great conflict and challenge, Kali Yuga, to a period of sight, you know, harmony and peace and all that uh, after that, after Jupiter passes, because then they're getting further and further apart. Things get better and better. So, so uh, we can look at it and look at the Jyotish and say, oh, well, that's pretty cool. That could be. And yeah, that's, you know, that kind of fits with what the Mayans said. And that kind of fits with uh, what Lord Krishna told Mother Divine, which is another whole thing to understand what that really is uh, personified correlates to the inner mechanic of existence. But anyway, uh, uh, on the other hand, we can take a look at it from a more, I think maybe less cosmic perspective. Look what's going on. I mean, there's so many arguments, so many conflicts, so much chaos in the world today. And what does that correlate to in my mind? And it is consistent with the Jyotish and just what seems reasonable to me is that we're in for a huge transition. 
even just who wins the uh, election. We're going to be going one of two very different ways. And uh, uh, the whole thing with the virus, if the vaccine works, if it doesn't work. I mean, we're on a tipping point in, in so many different things. And how's it going to shake out? Well, it, it makes me think about that phase transition that I've talked about when water turns to ice. There's a brief period there where the chaos is extreme. All the molecules start bubbling. They don't know what to do. They're all going different directions. And uh, uh, until finally it settles out, and then you get an increase in coherence. There's more coherence and structure in the lattice structure of ice, for example, than there is in water. You know, So it stands to reason when we look at all this and put all these different pieces together that that transition period is happening and things are going to get way better. Things are going to sort out. Now, we can have our opinions based upon, you know, what that means. Does that mean we're going to tear down the border wall or they're going to com- complete its construction? Does that mean Biden's going to win or does that mean Trump is going to win? Uh, we'll see. And, and really, in, in the greater scheme of things, if, if what the Jyotish is saying uh, this whole phase transition idea that the Mayans were even talking about, and and now in the, in the uh, Vedic knowledge they're talking about is phase transition from the age of chaos to the age of harmony. Uh, uh, that's deeper, and that's more relevant. And how things are playing out on the surface is to you know what that means as far as who's going to win and who's going to lose and, and uh, any of that, that'll all sort itself out. Uh, what we need to do is, uh, and what we can do is get out of the weeds. Don't get caught up in the, I'm good, they're bad. I'm good, he's bad. Uh, this is right, they're wrong. Because all that does is it, it, it feeds the yin and yang, the dynamic of polarity. Which, like in the uh, Chinese system, what do they say? Yin creates yang, yang creates yin. Polar ap- opposites. Uh, you feed one and it increases the other. So what do we do? We risk into that transcendental depth of our being, that source of harmony and the intelligence that clears the cobwebs of emotional turmoil. It's that emotional turmoil which is coloring and twisting and distorting our, our thoughts, you know. Uh, and therefore our actions. And so if we rest into that place of equanimity, uh, that's the best that we could do to uh, help the transition along. Because this transition to this healthier age, we could say it this way. You might say if the right guy wins, whoever that is, if the right guy wins, that transition will happen fast. If the other guy wins, I'm just using that as an example, then it could take longer for that transition to be completed. You see? So those decisions on the surface do matter, but what's going to really sort that out and what's going to really determine which direction the chips fall uh, has to do more with the degree to which humanity is connected to the transcendental depth of their being.
No, that's not an attitude. We can't say, oh, okay, well, then I'm going to be equanimitous. That's just another thought on the surface of life. It, what has to happen is we have to integrate our physiology. We have to, it's a physiological thing where we integrate the depth of our being with the surface of our lives. And the most powerful tool for that is meditation. And it's also good to have these understandings that we're talking about here. Why? Because that helps us uh, let go of the vice-like white-knuckled grip we have onto our convic- convictions that we're identified with by virtue really of our karma. You see? So, so uh, there's a, another principle here, and that is that we gravitate towards what's familiar. We've been brought up to think a certain way. We have certain feelings about what our spirituality should look like, what it should look like. I've given these talks so many times and I've had people just jump up and down and cheer and say, I'll never miss another lecture. This is what I've been looking for my whole life. And then they walk out the door and you never see them again. Why? Because they gravitate back to what's familiar. What's familiar. Uh, The analogy analogy that I've heard often used in India is if you take somebody out of a hut and put them in a mansion, they might appreciate the mansion the first day, but after a little while they say, I miss my hut. And that's how it works, too. You can give great knowledge, but but it's not what's familiar. It's not what's in their physiology. It's not what they grew up with. It doesn't feel right. It's not their home. And so they tend to let it go and gravitate back. So there's a lot, you see, that needs to get overcome if we're going to get anywhere, um, really get anywhere with uh, the evolution of our planet and the transition from this oblivion that we're living to the utopia that's our, our potential. You know, uh, Bob Dylan, I quote Bob Dylan a lot. He had this, in, I think it was in um, Love Minus Zero, No Limits, I think it was. And he said, uh, people talk of situations. Write books, repeat quotations. Draw conclusions on the wall. And then he said, uh, which is just ironic as heck, isn't it? I mean, in the dime stores and the stations, people talk of situations, right? Books, repeat quotations, draw conclusions on the wall. So you get the image of, you know, graffiti on a bathroom wall. You know, how significant is that? How meaningful is that? And, of course, he's making that analogous with all the opinions that are out there. It used to be on bathroom walls. Now it's on social media, you know? And uh, uh, so my love is something like my love speaks softly. She knows too much to argue or to judge. You know, so seeing beyond all that, he's alluding to it. Poor Dylan, you know, he had these feelings and these insights, but he really didn't have, I don't think, all the pieces really put together, you know. Uh, so it was kind of unfortunately sort of a cynical relationship with life. It's still a brilliant one, particularly the way he would articulate it, you know. Uh, and then in, in another song, My Back Pages, where he says, uh, oh, but I was so much older than, I'm younger than that now, you know. So we have to return to that innocence of youth. And what is innocence? It's not naivety. 
Innocence really has to do with resting into that fine, delicate, exquisite fabric uh, at the depth of our being. And that's what it means to be like a child in a way, because we're not all indoctrinated and invested in and strong with our convictions about right and wrong and who's right and who's wrong. And, and it's become a really arrogant kind of a mentality in the world today, hasn't it? I don't know. Sometimes I feel like it has to do with the clarity trips that get created in people's minds uh, from a drug culture, you know, Lucy in the sky with diamonds. Imagine there's no heaven, no, nothing above us, but sky, you know, blah, blah. Uh, these kind of uh, candy land, ice cream cone in the sky notions of what life is that are just off really on uh, really irrational t- tangents. And we try to then create a world based upon those uh, irrational, idealized notions that really aren't integrated with and consistent with the nature of life, you know? So, we're in for a roller coaster ride here for the next month at least. And uh, for one, whoever wins the election, the other side's going to go ballistic, I think. And they're just so much uh, on the edge. They could fall either way, you know. I had, I had a uh, professor in college who was an economist. And he said the whole thing, he said an interesting thing. He said the whole thing is so complicated that trying to predict where the chips are going to fall, what with, with, with the future holds. He said it's kind of like leaves are falling from the top of a great huge tree in the, in the autumn, you know. And the leaves are falling, and it's trying to predict where each leaf is going to come to rest on the ground, you know. But there is a determining factor, and that determining factor is that transcendental basis of existence, you know. Ultimately, everything is well and wisely put. Uh, and to make life better, we need to have a deeper relationship with it, you see. So, uh, I don't know, is there anything else you guys want to add no, that was great. Yeah, no, that was good. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering if there's anything else we want to talk about here or mention before we close. That gives the gist of it. You know, uh, you know one thing I, I did want to mention, I'm looking at some things I jotted down here. One thing I did want to mention, this thing about the church and the uh, viruses and how they want to close the churches. And it just, but they won't close the uh the bars, the liquor stores, even the strip bars, I understand. They're letting those stay open, but they're closing the churches. And so, I mean, that's got to translate, doesn't it, to um, there's a bias against the churches. It's not just purely science with respect to the viruses. There's more to it, you know. And I can't help feeling that what that is, is that, we live in a time when people are rationally oriented. That's what we try. We use our rationality to justify however we're feeling, but nevertheless, it's the rationality that wins the arguments, you know? At least we try to win them with rationality. Uh, I would add to that, though, that you don't silence a person. You don't defeat a person just because you've silenced them. They still feel how they feel, and that's what really determines the direction they go. But nevertheless, with respect to the church, I think 
because of the way it's been presented to the world, spirituality and God and all that, it doesn't make sense to most people. And so they look at it and they see these people going to church and they just say it's it's ridiculous. Now, mind you, it's only because the deeper understanding that this rational, the deeper intellectual understanding that this rational age demands uh, isn't offered. But you see, at the same time, spirituality is about something that's so deep inside of our soul. Uh, it's our essence. We're connected to it. It's us. And if it's understood, really. Well, I mean, I'm talking about the real understanding of it, what it really is about. And that's why people are so committed to their church, so committed to their religion. They know that something's there. But, but uh now take a person that looks at it and says, that doesn't make any sense, and they have to reject it. That puts them in a horrible position because what they're doing is they're denying that finest feeling level, that sense of the unity and the transcendental basis that, that is what is called spirituality. And they can't do the dance around it because of what appears to them is the irrationality of the dance that they were taught to do. So really, to me, people that are kind of anti the church and all that, anti-religion, wanting to close the churches but leave the strip bars open and like that, what they're really doing is crying out. They're asking for help if they know it or not. They're asking for a spirituality that makes sense. It makes sense to them. But see, now we combine that with the idea, okay, people want a spirituality that makes sense. So you give them enough that now they turn that making sense into a rationalization so that they can go back to, and we talked about this a minute ago, they can go back to what's familiar. Oh, yeah, you know, uh, what's familiar to me is, you know, waving hands in the air or doing whatever it is they did and learned from childhood as uh, practicing their spirituality. And now they then have an excuse to practice a certain uh, spiritual behavior that is really more about uh, Candyland, uh, rainbows, and fairy tales, and and so is and so I call those astral tangents, and so they're off on their astral tangents, and uh, they get it now because they have this rational ability to rationalize what they're doing, whereas before they didn't, and that's not what it's about either, you know. Spirituality is a subtle, elusive. The more subtle something gets, the more elusive it gets. And when we're talking about spirituality, we're talking about the most subtle basis of all existence, that finest level that holds together and supports the whole fabric of all existence. So there's a lot that has to be uh, overcome. Uh, but there's a principle, you know, that if the tension gets great enough, you know, you tighten up those rubber bands of conviction and and uh, identity. You tighten them up enough, and what happens sooner or later, the whole thing just springs loose, and everything finally rests. All the rubber bands rest flat on the table, and uh, that's that's what's coming. I think we're going to rest into just by virtue of the fact that we're going to get that this isn't the way, you know, and so all that just going to spring free. And people are going to spontaneously enter into a deeper level of, of, of thought and emotions. 
I want to say one more thing before we close. I've got some questions recently about uh, <clears throat> what happens. See, there's this idea that life after death for enlightened people, what happens to them? Because there's some disciplines that say, well, if, if, you, if you are in early enlightenment and you drop the physical body, you just merge flat back into the flat absolute. Now, uh, and so you're kind of stuck. Whereas if you evolve more deeply, more fully into an enlightened state, then what happens is when you drop the physical body, you are free to function in these different heavens, if you will, and then come back to earth if you so choose to affect the change. Uh, <clears throat> and so people get scared. that, Oh, my gosh, what if I you know, gain enlightenment? Like they say, a lot of people gain what moksha is. is moksha means enlightenment the moment you drop the body. And so what happens then in their mind, you're just going to get stuck in this stupor of transcendental isness with no individuality in perpetuity. Sounds horrible, like a twilight zone or something. That's not the way it works. It's more like um, when you become enlightened, there's a uh, level of uh, overwhelm, we could say. And what's overwhelmed? The whole relative existence that you've been living becomes so fully overwhelmed by the grandeur of oneness, the grandeur of divinity, the grandeur of God, if you will. And so you're just kind of like that, you know? And it lasts a different amounts of people, a different amount of time for some people. Some people blow right through it. Some people it can last weeks, others years. But the thing is, if you're in that state, and then the physical body drops away. Oh, man, you just want to rest in that state. It just feels so good. It's just so incredible. But that's not going to last forever because sooner or later, you're going to want to start to function, start to do something. And... If the physiology isn't integrated much past that initial enlightenment, you're going to want to stay in the heavens, but you're not going to want to. The physiology isn't integrated enough with physicality, you see, to make the transition back into the physical world. It's still great. I mean, there are all sorts of heavens up there. But uh, isn't it greater when you can have a purpose to enter relativity, re-enter into relativity, and for no other reason than it's like, hey, you know, come on, people. Life doesn't have to be like it's it's been. Life can be bliss. We can live in harmony. And so they have the uh, purpose, the conviction, the commitment to come out into a world of conflict, a world of abuse. Look what they did to Jesus, for example, you know. Uh, um, but you do it out of heart. And out of commitment to a purpose and a cause. And it's so much meaning there. And so those are the possibilities. And I wouldn't get too upset about um, you know dropping the body in early enlightenment because it's it's not a sentence to an <laughs> some kind of imprisonment or something, you know. Uh, uh, but also the techniques that I teach are more about uh, integrating those higher levels of physiology concurrently with enlightenment. So once 
once enlightenment is attained, quickly, quickly, we move on to the higher levels, you know. And so that's why it's such a shame, though, that people get this knowledge and they learn it. And then they go back to the astral identities that they have longed for from childhood. You know, the fanciful, oh, you know, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to talk to God. And, and uh, it's all so beautiful. And, oh, aren't we having fun? And isn't it all wonderful? Astral tangent. And you can get lost what did my teacher used to say? The astral realm is a vast and desertous wasteland, you know? So the, uh, the uh, spiritual path is a delicate and elusive one. Uh, the left-handed tantric techniques that, you know, basically jettison people into uh, these astral identities are to be avoided, even though they're flashy and people like flash, but they're to be avoided, you know? So hang in there, great times are coming. Uh, great times are coming. Uh, do your meditation and uh, uh, stay with it. And uh, we will live to see a great enlightened age. All right. So thanks for listening. And oh, this is fun. We're doing our uh, video broadcast for the first time. And so we'll still have it the same way it was with the audios. But now you'll be able to watch it on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Okay. Thanks for listening.